0: Okay, so we're finishing up First Timothy. We're in a series in First and Second Timothy. I figured we might as well just do both of these letters at the same time while we're while we're doing one of them. Um, and so the overarching theme of First Timothy and Second Timothy really are the same. The primary issue is how do we, as followers of Jesus, stay faithful to Him as He is faithful to us. That's that's why we're calling this Faithful Savior, Faithful Church. First um, Timothy really deals with a, a church in the city of Ephesus. That's who it was written to. It was written to Timothy who was in Ephesus to help this church, which had just gone off the rails. They had lost their way. They they really had abandoned the the true, simple gospel of God sending Christ into the world to save sinners for some form of like works righteousness or some form of we have to work to, to make Jesus happy with us. And and that the salvation we have is dependent on what we do and not what Christ has done. And so we've kind of walked through all of that. But as we get to the end of this letter, we're just looking at the last paragraph of this letter. And it's um, it, it's just really kind of out of left field, it feels like, a little bit. Um, he gives Timothy one last set of instructions and it's to a very particular group of people. So look at verse 17. This is going to set us up for where, where we're talking. Now, I want to try to establish that we may, we may pull back from this and go, well, it doesn't apply to me. We'll just tune out what's happening. It does apply to us. God's word always applies to all of us. Um, but, but we do need to recognize that there's a context here. So in verse 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age so so paul is telling timothy now how to disciple the rich in the church why specifically this this is actually really interesting because in all of paul's letters he doesn't really address directly wealthy people like this where he's giving specific instructions for how to be a follower of jesus with a lot of money it's just interesting. Like he, he does talk about giving and generosity and sharing um, all kind, in all kinds of places, but this is like a very direct uh, approach to the rich. And it's like, I don't know that anyone in this room, I don't know everyone in this room, but I doubt anyone in this room is going to call themselves rich. Right? I, I just don't think that's where we are. Um, we have to recognize that Ephesus was an extraordinarily wealthy city. Uh, it was actually the wealthiest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was a it was a massive uh, hub for trade and commerce. And in fact, if you read the Book of Acts, when Paul and his friends get to Ephesus for the first time, they bring so many people to Jesus uh, through their preaching that people stopped buying the idols and the magic books that were really part of the religion in that city to the point that they were all coming to Jesus. So they weren't going to buy these books anymore. and They weren't going to buy these little trinkets and statues of other gods. And and so what happened is that the people who made these books and made these statues created a riot in the city because they were like, these guys are going to run us out of business. And so money was a big, big deal to the point that these guys created a riot in the city because they weren't going to make enough money with, with Paul being there. So, so Paul had this terrible thing happen to him. The riot happens. They go after Paul. They beat them up to an inch of their life. They drag them out. And then he just goes back in and does it again. It's like, it's great. Like Paul is a really amazing, was a really an, an amazing man. But Ephesus was a big, big deal for wealthy people. So we need to recognize that context. Um, I don't know that anyone in the universe would say Antigo is the, uh, is the wealthy epicenter of the world, right? We're just not. Um, that's okay. We don't need to be. Praise the Lord, we're not actually in some ways, I think, um, because people in Beverly Hills live miserable lives even though they look like they live glamorous lives. Um, money is not the issue. However, um, I do think that Paul's definition of rich is broader than our definition of rich. When we think of rich, we think of people like Bill Gates or the Kardashians or Donald Trump, who before he was president was famous for just being rich. Like that's literally why he was famous, right? So we we see those people and we think, oh yeah, they're rich. I'm not rich. They are. And we put them in their own little category. And definitely it's true that they're richer than all of us, probably combined. Um, But... But let's go back and look at what Paul means by the rich, because I think his definition is a little different. I, don't, I think I have these on the screen, but if you look back at verse um, uh, 8 in the same chapter, here's what Paul says. He says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. The love of money, that's the key word, love of money. Not money itself. We hear that quote misquoted all the time. right? We hear money is the root of all kinds of evils. No, it's the love of money, not money itself. There's a different motivation there. And he says it's through this craving, this craving to be rich, that some have wandered away from the faith... And pierce themselves with many pangs, many, many pains, basically, right? So, Paul's definition of rich is interesting here because if you look at that first thing he says in verse eight, is if we have food and clothing, with this we'll be content. So, basically, what we're talking about is that's the baseline of just living as a human being, right? We need food, we need clothing, we need shelter, right? That's what kind of clothing represents, is just your your basic survival needs, food and clothing. That's baseline. So those who live under that line would be in poverty. So if you don't have an adequate amount of food, if you don't have shelter, if you don't have clothing, these are that's a huge problem. That's that's where you're you don't want to be there. That's poverty. But he this is biblical definition, maybe not our definition, but he would probably say anything that's above that line so if you've got more than just food and clothing, you're, you're probably, in his mind, being lumped into the rich, which is interesting because that's not how we would define it. Uh, because most of us, maybe not all of us, again, I don't know where everyone is on this, but uh, most of us probably do fall above the pure food and clothing line. Right? You probably have a car. You probably got here with a car. Maybe not. That's okay. Okay. Um, but most of us probably own a car or two. Most of us probably have a house to live in. Most of us are probably doing okay and have some extra things. Great, we don't need to feel guilty about that, but that's probably where Paul would would draw the line between what is rich and what is poor. Obviously, some people are gonna live way above that line and some of us are gonna live closer to that line of food and clothing, but that's that seems to be what he's talking about. Um, so so again, everyone's maybe in a different spot here, but none of us would call ourselves rich. Um, I, I know that. I know that none of us would get go there and just be like, oh, look at me. Um, we're, we're not that kind of culture. We're not those kind of people. But, but nonetheless, Paul is going to speak to the wealthy. And I think whether you would call yourself that or not, there is going to be something here for you, even if you don't put yourself in the category of the rich. That's okay. Uh, I think you're going to find that there is a, there's a principle here that, that we can all take as Christians. All right. So as for the rich in this present age, verse 17, here's what he's, here's what he's telling Timothy to tell them. Charge them with two things, two negative things, not to be haughty, not to be haughty. That's an interesting word. Um, we'll stop with this. We'll talk about this. The first thing that Paul tells Timothy to tell the rich in this church is don't be haughty. Now, some translations choose the word prideful. Some use the word um, arrogant. That all is accurate. Um, That's what haughty means. It fundamentally is about being an arrogant person. Um, It actually comes from a Greek word, two Greek words that he basically puts together, kind of a hyphenated word that is um, literally just translated into English as high-minded, high-minded. So what he's saying here is don't uh, to charge the rich not to be high-minded. And, and I think we can understand why he's saying that, right? Because people who have a lot of money tend to be kind of proud about that. They, bra- they brag about it. They boast about it. They, they kind of look up at themselves and go, look at how impressive I am because of how much I have. And Paul starts this instruction with, no, 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 don't go there. Don't be this high-minded person. Don't be this obnoxious person. Um, If God has blessed you with material wealth, wonderful, but don't be an arrogant jerk about it. That's essentially what he's saying. And he says, don't look down on others. Don't boast in it. Don't don't look up to yourself. Don't be this high-minded person. Think of all those snobby rich people that have their noses up in the air and, we're, you know, everyone else is below them. That's what he's telling the Christians in the, in the church in Ephesus who are, who are blessed with monetary wealth. Don't be like that. Don't mistreat people that way. And, and that's a real temptation because people who have a lot of money tend to look down on those who, who don't. And the reason they look down on those who don't is because they're not ultimately looking up to God. They're too busy looking at themselves. And so Paul's first instruction is don't be haughty. Don't be high-minded. Don't be arrogant about your wealth. That's obvious for for those of us who live in the Midwest because Midwesterners really get turned off by people bragging about how much money they have right we just do and that's good I think we're actually probably the one group of people in the states that are like nope don't want that right we don't brag about how much money we have we brag about how little money we spend that's what right somebody compliments your shoes oh you won't believe the deal I got on these shoes you won't believe it I got these at Goodwill they were dusty in the back no one I got them for two dollars that's what we do Praise God for that, by the way. Like, that's great. I love it. But that's what we brag about. We brag about how little we spend, not how much we spend. And so I I get that this is, we get this. We can rip on those people who want to dress like Mr. Peanut and walk around and act like they're all fancy and classy. And uh, we get it. Here's the other danger, I think, before we move on to the second thing that Paul tells Timothy to tell the rich. I think there's actually a danger in people, not just rich people looking up to themselves and being high-minded, but in people who are under them looking up at them as if they are more important. I actually think there's a danger in in us looking at the rich and going, man, I wish I had their life. Or I wish I, I had what they had and we can become envious of it and and want to see ourselves in their orbit. Um, so I didn't grow up in Antigo. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and there were just a lot of people I met over the years, and specifically in college, that just had a lot of money, and uh, or or had kind of famous parents or or whatever. And it was just so irritating to watch the the, the groupies, you know, go around this person just because they are, they're they're important people, or they're rich, or they're influential, and it's just like so, to me, it's always been off-putting. I have a lot of flaws, but that's not one of them. Uh, I'm not, like, if you tell me how much money you have, I will, I will be like, well, good for you, you know, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, I'm just that, I'm just that, that's how I've always been. I've never been impressed by that. I have a lot of other flaws, okay, so I'm not trying to boast in that. I'm just saying that's not my, that's not my temptation. But, it, but I do want to recognize it is a temptation for some. And it's even a temptation we see spelled out in the scriptures. If you flip over to James chapter 2, James chapter 2, he, the, the apostle James actually directly addresses this issue. In um, yeah the first part of chapter 2, if I can get there, here it is. This section, he's talking about um, the sin of partiality. Partiality is where you draw a line between this group and that group. And you treat one group on one side of the line differently than the other. Here's Here's what James says. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And here's how he applies it. Look at verse two. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, that's, that's yeah, right? He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man Are not the rich ones those who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we'll stop with that. But here's what James basically says to the church. And this is the church in Jerusalem that he's writing to, but still a group of Christian believers. And what he's saying is, listen, if you see somebody, if you see two people walk into your church and one is super rich and is showing that off by how they dress and one is very poor and you can tell that by by their external situation, and, and you're looking at these two people, and if you show favoritism towards the rich guy and exclude the poor guy you're actually committing a sin it's the sin of partiality the bible the bible teaches that the church is to be an even playing field for anybody regardless of their social standing or economic position everyone deserves to be treated with the same love dignity and respect that christ would show regardless so we don't mistreat the the rich and we don't mistreat the poor we treat them Equally with respect, but I think this is a danger in the church I think i've I mean I've seen it not here by God's grace, uh, one because no one has ever in this church has ever come up to me and said if 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 you do this for me, I'm going to give you this much money. That's never happened. and again, like I said, if it did, I wouldn't but take the bait because I'm just not I'm not that guy but Listen, that's that's the thing is like people do this in churches. I was on staff at a church in North Carolina where one particular guy had what they called old money. Um, and I don't know what that means exactly, but he had a lot of money and apparently it was just generational money. And he dangled that in front of that church so much and the church would continuously kowtow to him and say oh, oh yeah yeah we'll just do whatever you want because they didn't want to see him leave with his money and and i remember sitting in a meeting with some some elders and the pastors and and he, they're like well this guy's demanding that we do this but we don't want to do this but he's threatening to leave if we don't and i stood you know i was like 22 or something and so they weren't they didn't care what i had to think and that's fine i Probably wasn't necessarily right, but I said, "Well, let him go then. Who cares? Like, just you know, get rid of him." And uh, they were like, "No." So that's fine. But um, that's my response. That's you know, that's that's the 22-year-old like, ah, we don't need his money. Oh, well, maybe we did. I don't know. But but nonetheless, there's a sense in which we there's a danger in the wealthy looking up at themselves, and there's also a danger in churches and just individual Christians looking up to the rich and and basically saying, well, we have to just do whatever you want, because if we don't, we're sunk. That's dangerous, and it's actually sinful, according to the Bible. So there's a danger in this, and we need to just be aware of it. We need to engage with people, um, in the same way we would with the poor as we would with the rich. We cannot make an idol of those who are rich. We can't allow them to be the shadow government of the church out of fear that they will take their money and go. The Lord will provide for his church. And so we need to make decisions based off of what the Lord leads and wants us to do and not purely on looking up at these high-minded people. Okay, so that's number one. Don't be haughty. Charge number two is this. Verse 17 still says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Second charge is do not set your hope as a wealthy person on the uncertainty of riches. I love that. I love that Paul goes there and says what needs to be said here. Of course he does, because the Spirit is inspiring these words. But he says this amazing statement, the uncertainty of riches. See, regardless, I think this is, again, this is not purely for those who are rich. I think everyone has a temptation to set our hopes on things that are just not guaranteed, are not certain, are not for sure. And if we put our hope there, we're going to end up being disappointed, disillusioned, and ultimately just dragged through uh, a, a painful season till the Lord gets us where he wants us to be. We, we, there's such a temptation to see our, our, whether it's our money or our health or whatever else we're, we're seeing as a temporary uncertain thing and setting our hope on that and then ultimately when the rug gets pulled out from under us because the stock market crashes or because the, the the health problem comes into your life or because there's relational discord or wherever it is that we're placing our hope, if it's not in Jesus, um, that rug is going to eventually get ripped out from under us because it is an uncertainty that we're hoping in. And when that does, when that when that rug gets ripped out from under us, we're... We, we've got nowhere else to go but to, to Christ. And that's where Paul start, He where he goes. He says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, right? So God is the only surety in this world. He's the only one who is not uncertain. So if we place our hope in him, then the circumstances of our life can go to and fro. It can get good, it can get bad, and we're not rattled to the core of our being because we have hope in the only truly certain person who exists, and that is on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We, we need to make sure that our wealth or our health or, or our relationships or anything else that's here and there are not what we set our hope on because they may be here today and then gone tomorrow. I told you over the last couple of weeks you're going to get a lot of C.S. Lewis from me, and here I go again, all right? It's just going to become a running joke. But, but I've been, and this is funny because I'm not actually looking this stuff up. I'm just reading the books, and it just comes, comes out uh, as, I, as I'm reading. So C.S. Lewis writes this, um, I think this is in, I can't remember if this is Problem of Pain or Mere Christianity because I've been reading too many books, sorry. But it's in one of them, all right? He's in there. C.S. Lewis says this. This is how I just found this helpful. He says, my own experience is something like this. I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a happy meeting with my friends or a bit of work that strokes my ego today or a vacation or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspaper that threatens us all with destruction sends the whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I'm overwhelmed and my little happiness looks like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. Then he goes on to say that, but the moment the threat is withdrawn, the moment that pain goes away or that headline disappears, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. That's such an honest statement. That's why I love C.S. Lewis, because he's just stinking honest, like ridiculously honest. I love it. But here's, here's the thing. He's, he's saying something that's insightful for all of us to hear. He, he's saying essentially this, that we just kind of keep plugging away with all of our normal life and whatever, and we're just totally content to not give much thought to Christ or not give much thought to the Lord, just kind of going along our way, and then something happens. Our our health is threatened, our wealth is threatened, our world is threatened, something happens. And the Lord actually does that for a good reason, because it forces us to realign and to get back to what actually matters, which is that Christ is to be our greatest treasure. But then as soon as the threat's withdrawn, here we go back again, right? It's It's this rodeo, we're always going back around and around and whatever, but and that's the, that's the human problem. But I, but I think that that's really helpful, and it's, it speaks to my own experience too. So um, here, so here's the issue. We're going to get into what the, the wealthy in Ephesus should do um, in just a moment. But I want to I just pause here in kind of the middle and just say this. Um, fundamentally, what Paul is drawing out here is not a money problem. It's not a problem with having too much money or not enough money. It's a problem with being content or not. It's a contentment problem. And I want to just kind of spend some time talking about the fundamental issue here. Because the apostle's not just trying to browbeat the rich. He's trying to help people walk with Jesus, and recognize that what they really need is not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches or to be proud in what they have, but to set their hopes on God, to be content in Him, to find their hope in Him, ultimately, because everything else is uncertain. And so I was reading Psalm 107 this this week at some point during my Bible reading. If you took one of the plans we had earlier this this month, you probably read this too, um, But I just it just as I read it, it struck me as wow, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, Psalm 107 verse 9 says, "For the Lord satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. The Lord satisfies the hungry soul." Listen, every, every human person, every single person in this world has a hunger that no amount of food, no amount of money, no amount of comfort can truly satisfy. We know this. We know this, but this is reality. Every person has an innate hunger for something that earth cannot satisfy. And that satisfaction is meant to be found and fulfilled in the Lord. That the hungry soul, the Lord fills with good things. And what's, what are those good things? Himself. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 6. John 6, I think it's 35. Um, so John chapter 5, um, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does this miracle, pretty, pretty famous. I'm sorry, not at the beginning of verse 6. He feeds the 5,000. And then he um, walks on water across the lake. Right? All these famous stories are kind of lumped together. He walks on water to get away from the crowds because <laughs> they can't follow him. So he just takes a walk across the lake. But then the crowds find him on the other side of the lake. And they ask him for more food. They ask him for another miracle. And, um, and Jesus, this is a long section. We're not going to read it all uh, because it's just too much. But basically, Jesus tries to get to the issue of their motivation. He said in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, Speaking to the crowds, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, he's saying, listen, you're not here because you think I'm God or because you believe I can save you from your sins. You're here because I gave you some food yesterday. He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And so then they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so they're going, okay, you say we need to do the work for the food that doesn't ever perish. Okay, how do we do that work? What do we do? And Jesus answered him, answered them, this is great. This is the work of God. Ready? That you believe in him whom he has sent. What's the work that we're supposed to do to be saved? It's not work, actually. That's the irony in it. It's believe. Believe in Jesus, the one sent from God. And so then they say to him, okay, well then prove that you're God. He's like, they just fed him 5,000 people, just ate yesterday. Like how much more proof do they need? But here they go again. This is the stubbornness of human beings. So what do you do to prove that we, we should believe in you? And then they talk about this manna in the wilderness, right, where Jesus or where God the Father sends all this bread down for the people of Israel. And verse 35, here's the key. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's the point? The point that he makes is clear. You guys are looking for a meal, but I'm actually the only one who can truly satisfy you. I'm the bread of life, right? He's not speaking like he's literally a loaf of bread. He's speaking spiritually, figuratively, but he's trying to make the connection between what they're looking for and what he actually is for them. And whoever comes to this bread of life will never hunger and never thirst Hunger and thirst is the most primal human way of, of needing to be filled with something, right? So that's why the Bible speaks of a hungry soul, a longing soul. It, it, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God, right? This, this analogy is used all the time of hunger, of thirst, of, of dying in the wilderness without something to meet that need. And Jesus says, I am that bread, I am that drink that will satisfy your hungry soul. It is in Jesus that we find our satisfaction. It is in Jesus that we can be free to actually use the blessings he gives us to help others. And that's where, where the Apostle Paul goes back in 1 Timothy 6. He, he transitions here after saying that they need to trust in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What is that referring to? It's referring to himself, ultimately. He's he's talking about the bread of life that he gives to us. And then he says in verse 18, they are to do good, the wealthy, those who have more than just their base needs. If you're blessed with more than that, here's what you do. You do good. You are rich in good works. You are generous and ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I think Paul's trying to make this connection and say, listen, if you are truly content in Jesus, then then you are free to actually give away some of what he's given you to help those in need, to provide for those who have less than you to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And th- in doing that, you're setting up a foundation for your eternal life. It's not just about what we have here and now because what we have here and now, will we're not taken with us when we go. We need to set up our hope on Him, not on our stuff so that we can be free and generous with our stuff. And I think that that's the point Jesus takes us to in Matthew chapter 6. Probably a familiar passage to some of you, but Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The point is, don't, store up, as in like hoarding your stuff. Why? Because that stuff is not guaranteed to you. Thieves can steal it. Moth can destroy it. Rust could destroy it. Right? These things are not inherently uh, eternal. So don't store up those things. Don't lay those things up for yourselves. Verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal, the eternal life that we have can't be taken from us. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, don't read this and think Jesus is against you having financial success or things. We don't have to just sell all our possessions and move into a monastery. That's not what. That's not the point. Paul actually affirms that it's okay to be wealthy, but we have to, if we're wealthy, we have to walk with Jesus and not trust in our wealth. That's the key. Having something is not wrong inherently. What is wrong is putting your treasure in those things because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So the implication is, is if you treasure Jesus, your heart will be with Jesus and if your heart is with Jesus, then your hands are open and, frankly, your wallet will be open to help those in need because you're not treasuring the things. You're treasuring Christ. And so that's, that's fundamentally the, the, the place we've got to get to, and that is not easy to do. It's, we're not really even able to do it apart from the Holy Spirit's help. But we're, but we're called to it. We're called to be generous, to be ready to share, to do good if we're blessed with, with more than we need. In other words, everything we have should be held out with an open hand. God doesn't want you to starve to death or allow your children to freeze in the cold, right? You need to get, get to that place, right? With food and clothing, we'll be content. You gotta you gotta meet those basic needs for your family and for yourself. But if you've been blessed with more than that, hold it with an open hand and say, okay, it's Lord, Lord, it's yours. We'll do with it what we want what you want us to do. And we and listen, no church, no pastor, no no preacher on TV should tell you how to how to spend that money. They shouldn't. The Holy Spirit will prompt you as you walk with Jesus on what you should do with your wealth if he gives it to you. All right, let's quickly just read the last couple verses. We won't spend a ton of time on this, but we should read them because they're here. And this is the last, last few verses of the letter. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And it's important to note that you is plural. It's not singular. So he's saying grace be with the church, you as a church. He cares about this church. And he tells Timothy, guard the deposit Don't don't be baited into these meaningless arguments. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. And I think that that's the key, right? Because by taking our eyes off of Jesus and believing in some false sense of knowledge, we've swerved, seen people swerve from the truth. And that's where the church is at. And so he's kind of ending the letter the same way he started the letter. By reminding Timothy, you got to keep your eyes on Jesus and help this church get there too. So in all of this, I know we've talked mostly about wealth and money and what we do with that. But fundamentally, the issue is simple. If If we love and follow Jesus as the chief and core treasure of our hearts, all the rest of the things will start to fall into place. The problem is we're trying to stack up a house of cards with all these extra things instead of building our our lives on the foundation of the true rock of ages. And so if we truly keep our eyes on Jesus, he'll lead us. He will actually show us and tell us what to do by his word, through his people, by the Spirit, all, the, all of the resources he has, he'll use. And so we can be thankful for that. And, and the, the, at the end of the day, what we need to do is keep our eyes on Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you that you have loved us enough to, to save us from our sins. And in doing that, you have given us every resource you have. And so we pray that you would give us what we need today. Help us to be wise. Help us to know what we're called to do. Would you speak to us and lead us? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.